So, I'm just going to get to this. We're doing a series on victory, aren't we? Yay, victory. I know no one feels victorious because you're like, where's my hour's sleep? But that's okay because it's not about feelings, it's about fact. But the fact is that we all have lost an hour's sleep. (laughs) So, you know, okay, that's fine. Um, And so, I'm speaking this week on another aspect of, of victory. Um, but the subject that I was, I was given when, as a team who kind of talked it and threw things around was the finished work of the cross. The finished work of the cross. Now, that's a big subject, which you can't really do in one week. So I've got two weeks back to back. Yay! I know that there's three of you who are happy about that. And I'm just going to put it down to you've lost an hour's sleep. However, if you're going to talk about the cross... You have to talk about sin. Boo. Yes. And obviously, talking about sin is very apt when we've lost an hour's sleep. Because we're like, that. there's a link, there's a connection some way about whoever made that decision. Whoever made that decision. Sin. So. So. Yeah. Now we've got some animation, haven't we? Now we've got some energy. Now we've got some engagement. So, we're all happy because we're talking about sin and we've got a life example. Particularly the mothers who have got young children. I don't sleep anyway and I've lost it. I I owe someone sleep. How does that even work? So, and the dads who should be doing stuff as well. Um, So, what it means is that this week and next week, I'm looking at the finished work of the cross. You have to talk about sin because sin actually gives the context and helps us understand the power and the impact of the cross. Today is not the final word. Today is not the final word, but we need to talk about some mucky stuff because then we appreciate the solution even more. He who understands he's been forgiven much loves much. So, please come back next week to get the answers. I'm sure nothing will happen to you between today and next week, so you'll be okay. But we do need to dig deep into some things. Because actually, when we talk about the cross, when we talk about sin, there are actually some interesting ideas that are kind of floating around. And so I'm going to be putting some things forward this week and next week, which maybe not everyone's going to agree with. But that's okay, because God's given us brains to work things out, hasn't he? God's given us scripture to dig into things. God's revealed his person through his fatherhood and through his son so that through relationship we know what he's like, not just through a book and not just because of what other people tell us. So that's okay. I'm going to use the Bible to explain what I believe. I'm not just going to make things up. But it might mean that you want to have a chat about some things in your small groups or with your friends and things like that. That's totally okay because Paul commends the Bereans for hearing what he taught them and then going away and searching the scriptures to see if what he was saying was not just him making stuff up. Yeah. Be like Bereans. Let's be a Berean church that searches the scriptures and tests things. Okay? Let's not take the word for anybody who stands up and says, this is what the Bible says. Let's make sure we know it ourselves because then it's our truth, not just a truth that's kind of, you know, we know the why we believe it, not just a, well, I know what to believe because I've been told what to believe. No, no, no. It's not really a belief if we only are kind of regurgitating something. Okay, so go away and test that what I'm saying is not me just making stuff up. Please. So, two questions I want to explore over these next two weeks. We're talking about victory as a series. So, victory over what? Victory over what? And victory for what? For what? What's the benefit of it? So, easy subjects to talk about, Okay. Let's pray, because I need it, you need it, and we're all owed an hour's sleep. I will get over that. I will get over that. 
Right, Father, would you bless us this morning? Would you help us? Would you help us to hear your spirit speak through your word? And we thank you that you're here, Jesus, because we're gathered in your name. So, Father, I pray for revelation. I pray for illumination. Lord, I pray that, um, Lord, if, there's a, if there are strongholds, that they would start to be dismantled. Lord, I pray for encouragement. I pray for affirmation. Lord, we want to know what, who you are. We want to know what the gospel is because gospel reveals your heart and character. So, Father, let us see and hear and experience and encounter you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, everyone with me? Everyone happy that we're talking about sin? Yay! Right, so three things we're going to cover today. Okay, three things. Number one, what is sin? What is sin? Number two, what does sin do? And number three, how does God react to sin? What is sin? What does it do? How does God react to sin or feel about sin? Now, the Bible uses... Um, we just kind of have this word sin, which is an, an old English word, okay? So it's not a Hebrew word, it's an old English word, because there wasn't necessarily a, a, an English kind of immediate translation across. So sometimes what we have in our brains when we think about sin is maybe not what uh, the writers of Scripture were necessarily communicating, okay? So the, there's three kind of very common words that is used for sin, okay? Uh, in Hebrew, so I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation, Okay? But if you don't know Hebrew, just assume I'm right. And if you do, please don't tell me. Let me live in my ignorance and pride. Okay, um, that's a joke. Please tell me. Right, so the first one, the word is katar. Katar. Something like that. It means to miss the mark. Ironically, I can't pronounce the word. I miss the mark. It means falling short of a standard. It's like an arrow that misses the target. An error. A mistake. Sin is when we fall short or miss the mark. It's a falling short of God's standard for us. But this is the thing. We hear that and we sometimes, particularly because we come from the West, so we think very legally, we think right or wrong, black or right, good or evil. We can sometimes reduce that to mean I've missed out on God's standard of law. I didn't live up to the Ten Commandments or I broke one of the commandments. We broke the law. Okay? It's that, but it's actually more than that. Romans 3.23 is the verse that can help us understand what Qatar, what sin is. When it says, all have sinned and fallen short. Ah, yes. What have you fallen short of? The glory of God. God's God-likeness. Sin is actually, we fall short of who God's made us to be. We fall short of the standard, the, the kind of the divine design, the divine ideal. We fall short of that through error. Okay? So it's not necessarily about what we do. Although it is, it's actually more about we don't quite make the standard of the grade or the ideal that God had originally purposed us for. Okay, does that help? That's one aspect of sin. Another aspect is the word pesha, which is often translated transgression. Now, transgression is when you, um, it's a betrayal, it's a rebellion, it's a violation of trust. Okay, we in the West will think of a transgression as when we kind of like cross a line, you know, don't step on the grass. <laughs> it's a transgression. But we think very legally in the West. But in, in, in ancient Eastern cultures, they thought much more relationally. So a transgression is a violation of a relationship, a boundary in a relationship, violating someone's heart, offending someone's heart. It's willfully crossing a boundary and willfully disobeying a rule that offends or hurts breaking a relationship, if you like, breaking trust. And then another word, the third word, is the word avon, often translated iniquity, which is connected to the idea of crookedness, distortion, 
twisting. This is like a sin that is repeated, that is habitual. It's a lifestyle. In that lifestyle, in that embracing of this lifestyle of sin is a corruption or a twisting and a consumption of someone's life, someone's heart. The idea is that a burden is built up. Iniquity builds up a burden, a weight. And the impact and the consequences of, of iniquity, in effect, crook, a burden on someone's shoulder, someone's back, and there's a distortion. People are bent over because of the burden of sin that they carry. The burden of sin that they carry. The Bible often translates this as not only iniquity, but wickedness. Wickedness, okay? Let me give you an idea of how these three, to, to get us kind of understanding a little bit of the difference, okay? The Bible says, a little wine makes the heart merry. Yay! But the Bible also says, getting drunk is sin. Qatar. If you're drunk, and you know you're drunk, and you get into a car, and you, you drive, and you know you're over the limit, you know that you're breaking the law, that is pesha, that is transgression. If you get drunk so many times, continually, regularly, habitually, daily, to the point where you develop alcoholism, it changes your thought processes, your patterns, it becomes an addiction, it consumes, it changes how you think. Everything you think and view on things is shaped by this iniquity. You justify it, you hide things to kind of, basically you change your lifestyle to adapt to this thing, this iniquity. That is Avon. Does that make sense? Okay, so these are the things that uh, the Bible talks about when it talks about sin. Okay? Now, to, to kind of present my case as it were, I'm going to use three Bible principles to kind of hopefully persuade you that I'm not making stuff up. We're going to look at what is the first time sin appears in the Bible, because scripturally that sets our reference point and our starting point for belief, and then we build on things from that point. We're going to look at how this concept develops throughout the story of scripture, as it evolves, as it adapts, because that's going to also help us develop our understanding, to make sure our understanding is biblical and not cultural. And the last thing we're going to do is we're going to look at what does this mean in the life and the ministry and the work of Jesus? How does Jesus talk about or act or respond to this concept? Okay, so three things. The first appearance in the Bible, the unfolding story of Scripture, and the example and life of Jesus. And hopefully we're going to get to a picture where we can go, okay, now we're clear on what the Bible says is about sin. And that's where we're going to go today. Okay, everyone with me? Fantastic. Right, if you have your Scripture... Open, Genesis 3 would be the place to land. We're familiar enough with the story that we don't need to do too much of a recap. You've got God, you've got man, you've got woman, and you've got a talking snake. Okay? Now, God has said in chapter 2, verse 17... You can eat any fruit of this garden that I've given you. Any fruit. Apart from one tree. Don't eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Otherwise, you will die. You will die. Okay, pretty clear. Pretty clear. Don't eat that or you'll die. And in Genesis 3, this, this figure, this serpent, this snake, persuades, convinces, manipulates, lies, deceives, tricks 
tempts Eve to eat the fruit and then Adam eats the fruit. And verse 7 of Genesis 3 tells us that three things happen. It says that the eyes of them were both opened, which means that straight away we know, we can say, sin shapes and changes the perception of the world. That's the first thing we can say sin does. It says that they knew they were naked, which means that we can say sin changed how they saw themselves and how they saw each other. And then the third thing it says is they made clothing out of leaves to cover themselves. Which means we can say that sin led them to take steps to meet their needs without involving God. They did what they thought they had to do without involving God to meet their needs. Okay? Now verse 8, God comes and humanity hides from him. God calls out, where are you? And they answer, hiding amongst the trees. There's this back and forth conversation. God judges them for their actions and they have to leave Eden. Okay? That's the story as it is in the scripture. Yeah? Everyone agree with that? Yeah. Now some people have taught that God is so holy he cannot be in the presence of sin. He can't be in the presence of sinful people. He has to turn his back on them. He has to separate and withdraw because of his holiness, because of his purity. But the thing is, here's my question. Is that what we see happen here? It isn't, is it? Who, does, who withdraws? Humanity. God doesn't withdraw. God's seeking them out. Humanity withdraws. So the separation or any separation caused by sin is not from God's end. It's from man's end, from humanity's end. Now, the text suggests that they withdrew because they were ashamed. Not because they were guilty, which they were, but because of their shame. Because it says, I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. They were afraid, they were ashamed. Because being naked is not new information for them. Because it seems like they lived naked. They weren't bothered previously about being naked. So many jokes that I just can't even go down that road. It's just be inappropriate. It'd be sin, it'd be sin. I don't know which one of those three it would be. Probably all of them in some way. But... Because of their shame, they saw themselves in a way they didn't want God to see them. And they're trying to avoid the impact of their actions influencing and impacting their relationship with God. So shame is different to guilt. Because guilt says, I did something wrong. But shame says, there's something wrong with me. Guilt is a legal thing. Right, wrong, good, bad, yes, no, black, white. But shame is a relational thing because it's about acceptance or rejection. Because of their view of God's being shaped by sin, they, couldn't, they could have said, I'm guilty, but God, you still love me and accept me. But they don't. They say, I'm guilty, so God, you must want to reject me, so I'm going to reject you first. So their guilt didn't keep them from God. It's how they felt about their guilt. Now, that's an important distinction we have to hold on to. Sometimes, do we struggle to approach God because actually we're ashamed? Actually, we're ashamed. I know I'm forgiven, but... That's shame. God doesn't withdraw. We withdraw. We pull away. When people say, 
God doesn't love me. Almost, almost always it's because there's a root of shame. There's something about themselves, how they see themselves, that makes them feel like they're not lovable. And that's projected onto God. Shame keeps us from God's presence, which is how we see ourselves, not how God sees us. We keep ourselves from God's presence. Not God, it's not what we see here. Now, some people will teach, and I've heard this, maybe some of you have, that by eating the fruit, Adam and Eve spiritually died that day. How many of you have heard that teaching or been taught that, that they spiritually died that day? Okay, how many of you have never heard that? How many of you have not put your hand up for either of those questions? Loads of people. We, he's a trickster. Don't, let, don't put your hands up because he'll lead us into sin in some way. Don't. It's not true. It's not true. Some people have taught this. There was, a, there was spiritual death. Said, oh, you know, because God said you'll surely die. And they took the bite of the apple. Now, they didn't physically die, so they must have spiritually died. So spiritual death, that's what happened. That's what took place. Do they seem separated from God? Because... Yes, they've kind of tried to withdraw. But actually what seems to have happened is there's a change in the relationship. But the relationship is still there. There's still a relationship. It might be fractured. It might be affected or impacted. But there's still a relationship. Because God has conversations with them. There's four questions. There's a judgment on the woman. There's a judgment on the man. And later God gives them clothing. So they have seven interactions with God after eating the fruit. Which isn't bad for someone who's spiritually dead. Which must mean then that if God said you're surely going to die, it doesn't mean physically dead, and it doesn't mean spiritually dead. So what does it mean? Because God said it. What does it mean? I'm glad you asked. Now, when we read it in our English Bibles, it says, you shall surely die. But in Hebrew, it's actually a very different sense of the word. It's different tense. It's different tone. It's a different kind of, uh, uh, kind of phrasing, if you like. What it actually translates as is, when it says, you shall surely die, it actually, a better reading, although it's clunky in English, which is why it doesn't get translated this way, is, dying, you shall die. Dying, you shall die. Which, what on earth does that mean? It means this, if you eat, you'll start dying today, and one day, you will die. See, we think death is an immediate thing, it's a once-off thing, it's a bang, it happens. And there's an aspect of that which is true, but actually what this is saying, what Genesis is saying is that sin opened the door to death as an invader, and death is now an inevitable process of destruction in the world that before was not there. Basically, it's a death sentence. They are under the clock of a death sentence, and one day that clock will run out. And that's what's happened. By opening the door to, to sin... The wages of sin are death. All of a sudden, death is an inevitability over their life. Maybe that day, maybe the next day, maybe the next year, the next decade. But at some point, they die. And that's why the New Testament uses this language, dead in your sins. You're in your sins living, but you're dead. You're a dead man walking. We're dead men walking without Christ. Because at some point we'll die. Whether it's that day or the next day, or the next week, or the next month, or the next year, or the next decade, one day we'll die. Because death is an invader, and now all of us are under it. It's power, it's influence, it's impact in some way. And that's what happened. That, that cataclysmic transformation happened when they ate the fruit. 
Does that make sense? Now, some people also would teach that Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden and banished from God's presence because of their sin. Because God can't abide it. He couldn't abide being in the same place as them, so they had to go. They had to be kicked out of God's presence. But is that what the Bible says? Is that what the Bible teaches? Have a look at verse 22, chapter 3. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. These verses, 22 and 23, tell us why they left the garden. It's because God didn't want them to live forever separated from him. He didn't want them to live forever clothed by their shame, living under their shame, obscuring their relationship with God. God didn't want them to live like that. God put them out of the garden so that instead of seeking life from the tree, they would pursue life from him. So it's actually a beautiful act of compassion. Because God's saying, I have to live in connection with you. If you stay in the garden, you're not going to need me or want me or seek me. That's not okay. I need you to want me and I'm going to pursue you. So we need to come out of the garden. And that's what 22 and 23 says. So what we've seen so far, just by looking at Genesis 3, we've got three things. God doesn't separate himself from sin or sinners, but instead he comes close. That's what we see. We see that death doesn't mean spiritual separation from God, but it means that an inevitable process of destruction has been unleashed on people and on creation. And it means that humanity wasn't banished from the garden because of sin, but because God didn't want them to live eternally without relationship with him. That's what we see from Genesis 3. Is everyone still with me? Is this helpful? Okay, so... What's the impact of sin on humanity then? What does it mean? Okay. I would say there's an individual impact, there's a social impact, and there's a cosmic impact. And hopefully my slides are going to echo that in a second. So the individual impact of sin. Okay, why is it a big deal? Why does it matter? What are we got so, why do we get all so, uh, about all this stuff? Four things, beginning with P, because I'm a little bit OCD about it. Okay. Individually, the individual impact. Number one, we are polluted. Sin pollutes us. They transgressed. They ignored God's commands. They violated his trust, his word. They were guilty of sin. So don't, not, don't hear what I'm not saying. Yes, they are guilty. They are guilty. And in that sense, they are no longer like God because they've lost their purity. They've lost their righteousness. They are now unrighteous. They are polluted. That's the first impact of sin. Secondly, there is a partition. But it's from them, not from God. They've put up this shame. They've put up this barrier. And they've actually put this barrier up, withdrawing from God. And actually meaning that they perceive and relate to God on their own terms. 
which we all see in society, people trying to relate to God on, their, on, on our own terms. We try to win God's favour. We try to do things that win his favour because of the shame that maybe people live under. We try and work around it or incorporate it. And actually, it creates a partition because we're not relating to God how he wants us and how he invites us to draw near, but what we think we need to do that's acceptable. It's a partition, a wall that we put up from our end. So sin pollutes. It, there is a partition. There's actually a perversion caused by sin as well. Perversion meaning a, another version. Another version. Their very human nature was corrupted. That's iniquity. Corrupted, twisted, changed. And although they were still in the image of God, they didn't lose being made in the image of God. That image, though, had been twisted, broken. And then the last one is there's a powerlessness that comes from sin. Because now they're spiritually blind because they don't see God for who he is. They see God how they think he is. And actually they're enslaved to the demands of sin and actually the evil one, the enemy. Slaves the enemy. So sin individually is polluting. There's a partition that's caused. There's a perverting of what God had originally made, the divine design. And there's a powerlessness there. But what about socially? Because often in the West, again, we think very individualistically. So we think about my sin. Or if we're self-righteous, your sin. But actually, sin is what we've seen here. It's not just about legal and guilt. It's actually about shame. It's about relationships. It's about how people interact. Sin shaped how they saw themselves, how they saw each other, and how they saw God. So there's a social impact. There's a communal impact. When you read the judgment over the woman, there's an announcement that there's going to be, in effect, some kind of tussle or struggle relationally between the man and the woman. Almost like a, a kind of a battling or a mistrust. And when we look at history, when we look at society today, we don't have to look far back in, we don't have to look far geographically, we don't have to look far back historically to see that sin impacts families. It impacts communities, it impacts ethnic groups, it impacts nations. The reality is that people who are made in the image of God don't always treat other people in the way they should treat people made in the image of God. And actually, evil and wickedness can characterize so much of how families and societies and nations and communities just live and deal with one another and deal with the kind of the complex nature of people living together in the same space. And thirdly, there's a cosmic impact. Again, we kind of think sin, me, me, me. And maybe we're like, oh yeah, and it kind of affects other people. But also, cosmically, sin made a massive impact. Sin changed creation it warped creation in the judgment over the man you kind of get this sense of where God says that the very nature of creation has changed because now everything's going to become harder everything's going to become a battle he uses this phrase thorns and thistles it doesn't just mean oh yeah your work it's not like oh, I can do my farming do 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 like, no, no, he's saying that figuratively everything has been changed. The very nature of creation, the very nature of the land, the sky, the earth, animals, plants. There's been some kind of corrupting thing. Also, death has been unleashed. That's why Paul in the New Testament says that through the sin of one man, death came to all. Adam opened the door. Adam and Eve opened the door. Death came in as an invader. 
So the wages of sin is death, but not just for everyone, for everything. One manifestation of that could be sickness and disease. Because it wasn't what God created or the divine design, the divine ideal. Sin affects us physically. It affects us mentally. It impacts us in so many ways, not just spiritual. It's not just a spiritual thing. Because humanity, who had been created to kind of rule the earth, steward the earth and partner with God, had decided to not listen to God and listen to the enemy, there was a forfeiting of authority as well. There was a forfeiting of a rightful place, as it were. And the enemy, the evil one, has stepped in and taken over. Now, some of us might be going, whoa, that's a little bit strong. But listen to what the New Testament calls him. Okay? Yes, there's Satan, and yes, there's the enemy, and yes, there's the evil one. But there's also the God of this world. The ruler of this age. The prince of the power of the air. Pretty grandiose titles, if all he is, is a little red imp with a pointy stick that's job is to remind me that I've had an hour's sleep taken from me. (laughs) The Bible talks about principalities and powers that rule and shape and govern and direct and influence society and culture. And again, in the West, because we like to be very rational and very materialistic and very reasoned and very scientific, we don't necessarily always do well with the spiritual, unseen, mystical stuff. But the reality is that the Bible tells us that we're in a battle, not against flesh, but against principalities and powers that only are there because humanity made a bad choice back in the garden. So really, humanity is like a ruined castle, okay? When I use this illustration in America, no one gets it because they don't have castles. All their buildings are like, this is a really old building, it's 25 years old. (laughs) No offense, guys, you get it. It's true. I lived there for five years, I can say all this stuff, it's totally okay. I've been waiting for the opportunity, it's all been building up within me. But we understand, we understand, don't we? Castles, you look at them, and some of them are magnificent but they've got massive holes and crumbling things and they've got weird animals living in them and they're a mess. But there's something about them that hints at the beauty and the strength and the power and the majesty and the might that they once had. But they can't be fit for purpose anymore. They've been corrupted. They've been tainted. They've been ruined. That's what humanity is like, the Bible's saying. There's still these hints of who God made us to be. And you look at some creativity. You look at some compassion and some justice and some things that people do and just say, yes, there's the image of God right there, the compassion, the love, the mercy, the art. Some of the stuff, the inventions, the sciences, he's magnificent. My wife's a surgeon. She talks to me about stuff that's got Latin words. And I'm like, I don't even know what you mean, but that sounds incredible that science can discover and change and fix things, that you can take a knife and cut someone open. And it's a good thing. Don't practice on me but yay well done that you learned how to do that keep away from me please it's amazing but we all know and we don't need to talk about it there's the other side isn't there the dark side the horrible side individually socially big picture still with me happy mother's day 
So my first observation, I've had lots of observations, my first big observation, if you just want to take one thing away, this is a good one to take. The first account of sin in the Bible story shows us God does not separate himself from sin or sinful people, but instead he draws near and he pursues. Okay? That's what I see from just reading scripture, okay? All right. So what about the unfolding story of the Bible? What about the rest of the Bible? Okay? What do these principles do? How do they work out? Okay? Genesis 4, the next chapter, what do we see? Cain kills his brother. He's the one who leaves God's presence, actually. And read it if you're not sure. He withdraws from God's presence. He rejects God, not the other way. Genesis 5, I won't go through every chapter of the Bible because no one's got time for that. We'll get to Father's Day, that'd be great. Um, the genealogy in Genesis 5, is a name and he died. There's a name and he died. There's a name and he died. So-and-so lived for 5,000 years and he died. So-and-so lived for a number that's far too big to count and he died. Death starts to infiltrate and its, inf- its effects start to pan out. We fast forward to say Exodus, because it's a big point, Exodus is a big point of the story. God speaks in Exodus 20 to the Israelites in the wilderness, but they're scared of him because their perception of God is being twisted. So they say to Moses, we'll die if we talk to him. Off you go, please you go. They don't care if he dies, it's a side point. You, you die, we don't care about you. But you go and talk to God, you be our priest, you be our prophet in our response. God doesn't turn his back on them though. Even through the wilderness with the grumbling and the moaning and the ungratefulness and the whinging and the whining, God doesn't turn his back on them. At one point, he's like, I've had enough. That's it, I'm done. We're going to start over again. And Moses says, no, and talks him down, talks him round. God, who is actually compassion, changes his mind. Interesting. How about that rabbit trail there, one? But the point is that God doesn't go, you've done one thing, you've dropped the ball once, I smite you with lightning. That's not what we see. Now, in the Bible story, there's two kind of key significant events in the Old Testament which help shape our understanding of the whole Old Testament. There's the Exodus and there's the exile, okay? The Exodus, 1500 BC, there or thereabouts, okay? That's the ten plagues, that's the commandments, that's lots of mountains, lots of wilderness, lots of crazy stuff, all that kind of thing, manna, you know, giving of the law. That's the Exodus, okay? Moses... Let my people go. Watch the Prince of Egypt. It's a good film, actually. Then there's the exile, 500 BC. Okay, so a thousand years later. Israel and Judah, the kingdoms of the people of God, enslaved by Assyria, enslaved by Babylon. Jerusalem, the city of God, is destroyed. The temple of God, the house of God, is wiped out. What's my point? One of those tells us that the people of God were led out of slavery into the promised land. The other one tells us that the people of God are led into slavery out of the promised land. But there's about a thousand years between those two events. And that in between is is basically the history of Israel. Kings and chronicles and some of the prophets. It's a thousand years when you read it of constant rebellion, idolatry, injustice, immorality. It's sin. Does God turn his back on them? For a thousand years he forgives them. He forgives them. He forgives them. He sends them prophets to say, stop what you're doing. You need to repent. He forgives them. He restores them again and again and again. He doesn't 
destroy or wipe them out after the first time he bears with them. Now, some people would use Isaiah 59.2. It's a verse that says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so he doesn't hear you. Some people use that to say, see, God separates. But the context of that verse is this exile. Because what God's doing, he's saying to Isaiah, tell the people, you're doing all the religious stuff, you're doing all the sacrifices, you're obeying all the laws, really, but not really, because on one hand, you're sacrificing and praising me and worshipping me, but then you're going around, you're, you're basically worshipping idols, you're committing sexual immorality, you're treating the poor really, really bad, so actually, your hearts are far from me. So actually, you're praying for me to bless you, I'm not going to bless you, I want you to repent. Then... I'll bless you and we'll talk. That's what that context that verse is. And if you read the verses before it in Isaiah 59 and after that, you see that. God's saying, you need to change. I'm not going to bless you in what you're doing. We need, to, we need to talk. We need to sort things out. Even in that, God's not withdrawing and pulling away. He's just saying, I'm going to stop answering your prayers so that you come to me and go, God, what's happening? And even the exile, when people are put out of the nations... It's an aspect, it is God's judgment, but it's also not God turning away. Because at the same time, prophets start coming saying, we need to rethink this whole relationship thing. I want to make a new and better covenant. One that is written on your heart, not on tablets of stone. Where everyone will know me, where my, my spirit will live within you. So even that is not God rejecting his people. He's rebooting. It's IT, turn it off to turn it back on again. So my second observation the unfolding Bible story shows us that God does not separate himself from sin or sinful people, but actually he draws near and pursues. Everyone see that? So, coming into land now. Jesus. Jesus. Woo -hoo. Yeah. Now, hopefully all of us can agree, if you're, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer here, the New Testament teaches really clearly that Jesus is God. Yep? Holy, fully God. The Word who is God was made flesh. Okay, John 1. So, Jesus, I want to get everyone to the point where we all can go, we agree with you here for where we go. Jesus lives, acts, thinks, and speaks as God. Yes? Everything Jesus does is because he's God. Things he doesn't do is because he's God. So he doesn't do or say anything that God wouldn't say or do. Everyone agree? Yeah? Great. How does Jesus, who is God, interact with sinners? John 4, the woman at the well. She's, got, she's had five husbands. She's living with a man she's not married to. She's getting water on her own during noon, which is the hottest time of day. Everybody else is inside. So she's a pariah. She's an outcast. She's a reject. What does Jesus do? He doesn't turn his back on her, but he talks and engages and has a conversation. To the point where his disciples come in and be like, he's talking to a woman on his own. What? What about Luke 7? Jesus is having a dinner party with the Pharisees and a woman who's called a sinner. So we don't know what that is. Some people say she's a prostitute, we don't know, but she's a sinner. The Pharisees know who she is, so she's famous for it. She comes in and she anoints Jesus' feet with her tears, wiping her hair, the perfume. He doesn't withdraw with, from her, does he? In fact, he says, this is beautiful, and people will remember this. What do the Pharisees do? They're repulsed 
They withdraw. They speak condemnation. Because their view of holiness is that we can't be around sin and sinners. But Jesus, who is the holiest person in the room, has no problem being around sin or sinners. What about Luke 19? Zacchaeus, the tax collector. He's rejected by his community. He's called a sinner. Does Jesus turn his back on him? No, Jesus says, I'm coming to your house for tea. Which culturally is a massive honor to basically be, have someone, the hospitality aspect is a huge honor. So Jesus said, I want to have fellowship with you as my friend. He's a sinner, but Jesus wants to draw near and come close. What about when the Pharisees accuse Jesus of being a sinner because he's a friend of sinners? You drunkard, you glutton, assuming that what he does is the same as what everybody else does. And how does he respond to that? He tells them three stories. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. What's his point? God doesn't withdraw or turn his back on sin or sinners, but he seeks out and saves what or who is lost. So what about Psalm 22? And Jan talked really well about this a couple of weeks ago. Listen to it fully. I'm going to add a little bit of my take and basically plagiarize everything Jan just said. But made my prep so much quicker, I tell you. Okay? <laughs> Jesus is on the cross and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, but that says that God turns his back on sin. He separates, he can't abide. It was the judgment of God. It was the wrath of God. Was it? Was it? Here's some questions I have as I thought about this, Okay? Number one, the feeling of separation from God does not mean the reality of separation from God. Have any of us ever felt distant from God? Yes. Does that mean that God is distant from us? No. Second thing, if Jesus was truly separated from the Father, that means that, that tr the Trinity ceased to exist at that moment in time. What that means is that you've got two separate Disconnected divine persons, which means that you've got more than one God. Now, that's a whole can of worms. Or you have to say that Jesus ceased to be God, which is a whole can of worms. My third point. In Jewish tradition, when you quote the opening line of a psalm, you're basically quoting the whole thing. Okay, it's like a corporate call to, to prayer and to worship, if you like. Psalm 22 is a messianic prophecy a thousand years before Jesus, talking about the Messiah, talking about the, the one that God was going to send. It starts off badly with a sense of forsakenness. Why have you forsaken me, God? But it ends with triumph. Verse 24, saying, Nor has he, God, hidden his face from him. Jesus. So what Jesus is basically saying is this. It seems like God's forsaken me, but actually... No, he hasn't. He's with me. He's with me. And all the people who have been with him, his new, his friends, his family, his disciples, his parents, who would be thinking, what, what, what's happened? What is all this about? There is our son, our friend, our brother hanging on the cross. What's happened? What about all the promises and the proclamations? And Jesus basically says, don't look at what's happening in the natural. This is what's happening in the spiritual. This is the reality. The reality is not what you see. The reality is going on. He is with me. He's not turned his back on me. And that was endorsed by the resurrection three days later. That's what's happening. All this stuff about Jesus and the Bible story and Genesis, but Jesus leads us, and I'm coming in to finish, to one of two conclusions. Either Jesus 
the friend of sinners, does not represent and demonstrate the heart of God wholly and accurately. How he relates to sinners is not how God relates to sinners. That's one conclusion we have to come to. There's a lot of problems there, isn't there? So the other option is this. Maybe, somehow, culturally, we may have embraced ideas about God's holiness that aren't biblical. We may have embraced ideas about sin that aren't biblical. Which means that, really, we're believing lies about God, ourselves, and each other. Which then shape how we live life, how we respond, how we worship, how we interact, how we have fellowship. So my third observation is this. The example of Jesus shows us that God does not separate himself from sin or sinful people, but instead he draws near. What I hope I've done today is this. Looking at the first time in the Bible, looking at the Bible story and looking at Jesus, I've shown that sin, sinful people are not rejected by a father God. But actually, despite the mess, despite the pollution, despite the twisting, despite the corruption, which all those things, God draws near and comes close. He does not run or turn his back or withdraw. The rejection is from us, not from him. Holiness, then, actually must be a manifestation of love, not a manifestation of judgment. Because Jesus, who is holy and is love, comes close. We don't see an angry Jesus, we see a happy, loving Jesus. So maybe our ideas of holiness, which we'll talk about next week, maybe not quite biblical. So next week, I'm going to look at how God dealt with the sin problem and what the finished work of the cross did, achieved, and obtained for us.